Well, uh, I'm convinced there's two types of people in the world, okay? There's the kind of people who love the outdoors, and then there's the kind of people who think you smell like outside when you go to get something from the car that you forgot. In my house, I'm the first. I love the outdoors, grew up being outside um, still to this day, man. Lost in the woods is like my, my favorite. I'd love to be lost in the woods, okay? Uh, my wife, not so much, you know? She, she'd rather just watch other people, uh, shows about people getting lost in the woods. She'll do that with me some. So for me then, one of the things that I learned early on was, uh, was how, to, how to navigate when I'm outdoors, right? And, and, and so there was a couple things that I had right off the bat. I, a compass, right, and a map. And so you see on the screen here, we're gonna put up a map. This is, a, this is called a topographical map, um, and it's big. This is a real map. You can't, here's the thing about these maps, because they're real maps, you can't, they just stay the same size, right? Uh, you, you can't like zoom in. You actually have to hold it. For those of you, this is maybe your first time ever seeing this. You didn't know these existed in real life. It's on paper. This is actually a waterproof paper. I'm blowing your mind right now, okay? Before we had those on our phones, we had real maps. And so topographical map, this is actually one of, uh, of Yosemite. And, and so the map helps you navigate, it helps you direct, you know, kind of your path and where you're going. And, uh, and again, in this picture we have here, so you, just so you can see a little bit better, you'll see there's a bunch of squiggly lines that go everywhere. And the, and the squiggly lines, the closer those lines were together, that's the steeper the terrain that you have to climb. Okay, the, the, the wider these little lines get, the, the flatter and the easier the terrain. And so if, if, we're, if we're down here, or if we're over here at the Half Dome, right, and we're wanting to, to make it, like we can look at that and go, oh, maybe we shouldn't go up that really steep terrain. That's probably not the best to go. But we, generally speaking, the map is oriented so that north is to the front, south is to the bottom. Make sense? not here to teach you how to go hiking. This is gonna have bigger principle, I promise, okay? Now, uh, the compass is helpful as well because the compass points north, right? There's a, there's, there's a little red thing there and wherever I'm, if I point that, like, okay, I'm pointing north, right? And so um, from where I'm standing right now, north. And so if I wanna know which way north is for the map, I lay the compass on the map and turn to the north, right? have to turn the map itself. Sorry, it's not like your phone, okay? Now, here's the thing. Uh, aside from that, there's a very important part of this that you may not realize. See, the, the, the compass, it points north to magnetic north. The map is written to what's called grid north, or sometimes they'll have, they'll have uh, true north and, and grid north. Okay, and so you'll see it here. I'm gonna blow that. We've got a picture for you. I'll show you. There's a small little, in the bottom of this map, you see the little N there that, that has a star and then it says 13 degrees? Look, okay, that's really, really important because what that tells me is that that grid north or true north is 13 degrees off of magnetic north. Every map has it. Different, depending on where you are in the world, is gonna depend on the degree of difference. If you don't account for that, you'll be having your map set to zero here, zero degrees. You'll lay this down on your map. You'll align it to what you believe to be north. 
and you will begin to follow that. And here's the thing. For every 60 miles that you travel, okay, if you're off by one degree, you will end up one mile off course. That's, that's a lot. That's a lot. In this case, 13 degrees. That's a significant difference. And so you and I could have the map, right? We could have the correct map that's showing us where to go. And we could have a compass that points north. But if we're not careful and we don't account for that, we will follow something that appears to be pointing us north, that appears to be pointing us in the correct direction. When in fact, it's just enough off that when we get to the end, we're nowhere where we thought we should be. We're in this series we're calling Mending Fences. And this, this weekend, we're talking about influence. Now, here's the thing. If you and I were, were to go and we were, we were to hike, we were to lay out our route, we were to hike that, there's a lot of things that are gonna push us off course. It's rare that you can actually go in a straight line, right? Sometimes the terrain will push. Sometimes you get to a cliff, you can't go. You have to go around. Maybe there's a river or a stream you have to account for. Rarely is the best path the straightest path. Sometimes we climb hills and sometimes we fall down hills, right? The, the, the terrain will push us. And so we have to make sure that we're heading the right direction because there are lots of things in life that want to influence the direction that we're going. And so we have to make sure that we are calibrated to that. And so whether you're here uh, with us today in Victorville whether you are online or at any of our campuses, this is an important thing for us because you and I both know life, it's got a way of pushing you off course. And, and oftentimes we don't even realize it until we're much further down the line and we look around and we go, how did we get here? And where are we now? So take, take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. Proverbs 14, 12 says this. It says, there's a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. It's almost like Solomon here in the book of Proverbs knows what we're talking about. That it, <laughs> this appears to be north, let's go this way, but in the end it's gonna lead you off the cliff because you didn't account for all the things that you should have accounted for. And yet here in our passage this weekend, as we get to chapter 11, we're going to find that maybe Solomon didn't take his own advice. I don't want to assume anything. So let me give you a little bit of context before we jump in to this chapter, a little bit of background on Solomon. Solomon's the third king of Israel. The first king was Saul. The next was David. Solomon is the son of David. He is an unlikely heir, really. He, he being appointed as king goes against custom. It goes against everything. And yet he becomes king uh, as the third king of Israel, the son of David, who is the greatest king uh, that we would know. Wisdom from Solomon, as I just said, is found in the book of Proverbs. We also find a book of Ecclesiastes there written. Um, he is given wisdom at his request. God comes to Solomon and, and, and says, okay, what do you want? I'll give it to you. That's a, that's a pretty good deal, right? Like if God came to you and said, tell me what you want and I'll give it to you. 
That's as close to an Aladdin moment as we get. And Solomon says, I don't know how to lead. I need wisdom. Give me wisdom. And God says, I will give you more wisdom than any person will ever have. And because you've asked for wisdom and not for riches and all of the other things, I'll give you those too. I'm just going to make you awesome. And that's what happens. This guy lacks no no, um, lack of evidence for the proof of God's love and his existence. In fact, we'll, we'll see even here, like, as I already said, look, the guy's chosen to, to succeed against all odds. He becomes king, even though he wasn't really the one customarily who would have done that. He's given this personal name in, in 2 Samuel 12 of Jedediah, which means loved by the Lord. Like that, that's not, I didn't get that name. I get Jody, which is confused for Judy and spelled wrong at Starbucks every time I go, right? <laughs> My wife and I go out to a restaurant, they bring the bill to her because they just assume she's Jody. Like, that's my name. I didn't get loved by the Lord. That's awesome. Like, I, I didn't know that was an option. That's fantastic, right? He's granted wisdom and prosperity. And then we're also gonna see, even in our text, he appeared to him twice. Now listen, if God appears to me at all, that's a win. Because that doesn't happen. And yet Solomon, Solomon had God appear to him twice. I mean, this guy should be set up to live faithfully, to rule well. And yet, here we go. We find ourselves in 1 Kings 11. Read with me here, beginning in verse 1. It says, King Solomon, however, loved many women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, They were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. Now listen, let me me just make a statement here. I want to be clear. When we see this, when when we see this, this declaration from God to not intermarry, this isn't a racial thing. We want to run to that in our culture right now. This isn't a racial thing. This is a holiness thing. What, what God is commanding these people is like, hey, don't marry people who don't follow me because they will turn your heart from me. Okay? You tracking? Okay, good. All right, verse three. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines and his wives led him astray. Some of y'all read that and you're like, Holy moly, I can't even keep my spouse's birthday and anniversary straight now. You're talking about 600 dates to remember? Like, no thanks. And it says, though, that they they did, in fact, lead him astray. Verse 4 says, And as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. And he followed Ashtoreth, the god of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. And on a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And he did the same for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their god. 
And the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. There it is, twice, two times he appears to him. Verse 10, and although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son, yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness, for your word, I pray as we uh, spend the next few moments uh, learning from it, that you would give us uh, clarity, you would captivate our hearts and our attention. Would you feel free, God, to bring conviction over us where we may find ourselves out of step or out of line. Uh, God, just meet us in this place. Be honored, be glorified in it. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. So, so you have this this great King Solomon, who has, has led so well, who was asked for wisdom and then ignores it. And we find that here, he is not just turning away, but even to the point where it says he did evil in the sight of the Lord. What's crazy is if, if we look one chapter prior in chapter 10, verse 23 and, and 24, look, look here what it says about him. It says, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. He is the greatest in riches in the whole world, the whole entire world who knows of Solomon, they want to come and have an audience with him. Now, if it ends in 10, we all go, yes, that's my king. I want to be like him. But what happens from 10 to, to 11 is crazy. And so we, we see very clearly that, listen, our faithfulness today, that doesn't guarantee our faithfulness in the future. Just because you're walking with the Lord today doesn't mean you will six months from now or a year from now or five years from now or 10 years from now. Just because your kids are walking with the Lord today doesn't mean they will be a year from now or five years from now, or 10 years from now. That's really important for us to recognize because we can get in this idea, which I believe is probably where Solomon found himself, where he's like, man, life is good. As Nacho Libre said, real good. Like, he just gets comfortable in his faith. He looks around and he says, I've got everything I'd ever want. Like, what more do I need? And then he begins the fade. Then 
he begins the fate. See, small compromises, small decisions, one degree off, five degrees off, 13 degrees off. And we end up very far from where we intended to be. And that's what happens with Solomon. The good news for us is this, it works the other way too. It works the other way too. In fact, in Daniel chapter one, we see this play out. Listen, just listen to this. It says, in the year, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, or as my kids, when they were small, called him Nebuchadnezzar. It's just more fun to say. He came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temples of God. And he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, and he put uh, in the treasure, put the treasure in the house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, king of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome fellows showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. And he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. So they come in, they ransack, they bring back captive, and they say, find me the best of the best and teach them our ways so that they can serve us, right? It says the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And they were to be trained for three years And after that, they were to enter the king's service. And among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the king official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Or if you like veggie tales, Rakshak and Benny. But Daniel, it says, resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Seems rather insignificant. We read chapter one, we get to the end, and uh, they've, they've, they've brought these guys back, they're in service there, and uh, the, the king has ordered that they be taught the ways of the Babylonians, and they get to eat from the king's table. This is the best food that you can find, and they're getting it. They're getting the best education, and they're getting the best food, and yet Daniel says, no. I'm not, I'm not gonna compromise there. For me, he says, I'm not compromising. And what, what plays out then is this back and forth where the, the guy's like, look, man, if you don't eat this food, I'm gonna get killed. You gotta be strong. There's no vegetarians allowed in, in Babylon. Like, you can't do this. And he's like, look, man, just give me a salad and some water, and I promise you, just put the Lord to the test, put my God to the test, and at the end, you compare me to them. And so he goes all plant-based with his diet, like a Netflix documentary, and he's drinking water, and at the end, he comes out, and he's like, swole. And he's like, man, you look, he looks better than the rest. Now, here's the thing, small decision, Seems like a victory in that moment. What happens later then in the book of Daniel is there comes this moment where Daniel has risen in favor and power and he has to make a decision because the king is duped a bit. And he has to make a decision whether he's gonna continue to follow the Lord and be faithful and take a stand that might cost him his life or compromise. This is a big compromise on a big stage that's visible by all. And he makes the stand. 
He holds fast to his faith. He's thrown into a den of lions and God spares him. And listen, church, I believe with everything in me that if Daniel doesn't make the small decision when no one else is looking, he doesn't make the big decision when everything's on the line. If you and I are not mindful of the small things that seem to influence us in our lives, if you and I are not careful to be faithful and obedient in the small things that others might deem insignificant, then when everything's on the line, we'll never be able to stand. We'll never be able to stand. And, I, and, and so we, we come to Solomon here and we see chapter 10, this, this mighty you know, rapport of how great a king he is. And then suddenly we find ourselves just a few verses later in chapter 11, seeing that this guy who has it all has everything, but he's left the one thing that gave it to him, which is God. And it should warn us that affluence doesn't safeguard influence. Being affluent doesn't keep us from being influenced. How often are we guilty of simply praying almost only for health and wealth and well-being because we want to live prosperously? And listen, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with God to ask us to do that, but when that's all that we're doing because we think, man, if I just had all of this stuff and all of these things, my life would be so much better. I would be so much more positioned to do so many more things for God. And yet in Solomon's case, we see that that is not the case. In fact, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know this to be true. We know that the more I feel like I can do this on my own, the easier it is for me to forget that I still desperately need God every day. And so we have to be careful of what we chase. His numerous wives, these concubines, they, they began, I think, as a way to simply expand the kingdom and offer peace to those he ruled. These are strategic political alliances that were, would have been very common in his day. Every king around him would have been doing something, these strategic things. But for Solomon, doing so meant disobeying God. In fact, in Deuteronomy 17, 17, Moses had, had already spoken to this. And speaking specifically of the king, he says he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. This is a verse Solomon would have known and somewhere along the way, forgotten. And it didn't just happen. We read it as if it happened in one chapter. Listen, this is decision after decision after decision. This is hiking miles of life with a few degrees off. And it gets easier and easier and easier to compromise. It's crazy, really, because if you think about it, in most cases, the king who is the most prominent, powerful, influential king would have dictated to those he ruled over what God they were to serve. We just saw it in Daniel, right? Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he's like, let's take them boys, bring them back, feed them good, steak and potatoes for them. And we're going to teach them to be Babylonians, good Babylonians. And we're going to teach them to work, worship the God of the Babylonians. You would expect Solomon to demand worship of God Almighty that he had known and seen. And yet, that is not what happens. 
In fact, the opposite is happening. He's influenced by the others. Verse nine tells us his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Verse three told us that his wives led him astray. And verse four tells us that they turned his heart after their gods. And listen, there's three mentioned here. And I wish we had more time to, to go through this, but there's three mentioned here just to give you an idea. Cause you might be sitting there thinking, oh, okay, it's not that big of a deal. Listen, let me just explain the three he mentions. Okay. The three here is the first one is Ashtoreth. This is a Canaanite fertility goddess. This is basically a goddess of sex. Okay. That's what he's allowing worship to. Not just allowing, but encouraging. Because it tells us that these gods, he builds places, high places, so that those may go and worship him. And his heart turns away from the Lord to these same gods. The second is Molech. This is the Ammonite god. Listen, the worship of Molech required human sacrifice. We're a long way from chapter 10. A long way from chapter 10. Kamosh is the, the third that's mentioned. This is the, basically the Moabite equivalent of Molech, who also required human sacrifice for worship. Like, what happened? How do we get here? Slowly, being influenced not being careful about what we're allowing to influence. He'd fallen in this trap of wanting to be like everybody else around him. And listen, you and I know this well. I don't have to tell you this, that the pressure to keep up and, and the pressure to conform, this will influence you to compromise your convictions. The pressure to keep up and conform, this is gonna cause you to compromise your convictions. You don't have to be a king to know this. You just have to own one of these. Our days are filled with looking at the highlight reels of everyone around us. We know that it's not real in our lives, but for some reason we look at what they're eating for dinner and we think, oh, they didn't have to take 12 pictures of that, filter it and caption that. While their food's getting cold. We look at where others vacation, we go, oh man, I'll never be able to go places like that. But then we search for moments where we think we can one-up them. Look, I'm at the beach, because I live in SoCal. Here's my feet and water. I'm not getting in, because it's very cold. But you wish you were here, right? The, the, the power that this can have over our life. And I'm not, I'm not anti-technology. Listen, I'm holding a phone that's mine, preaching from an iPad that's mine, okay? Like, don't take this further than I'm saying. But we have to be mindful of the influence. That the, listen, you know this. You may, you may not know this. You will know this now. Nothing on this is neutral. Nothing on this is neutral. Everything is fighting for your attention. Everything. Everything is tracked. You're scrolling through your feed. Listen, it's tracking what you click on. It's tracking what you share. It's tracking how long you linger on that image or that video or what you watch. And then it begins to eliminate things that you're not looking at. And if you're not careful, you'll, you'll notice this. All of a sudden, your feed is filled with all the same things. 
And you're like, man, I follow all these things. Why do I keep seeing the same stuff? It's because they're pushing you to what you are chasing after. They're feeding the very thing that you've been snacking on. And it's doing it more than you and I even know. We did a few weeks ago, we were sitting around with our kids. We have four kids, they're all, our oldest is 20, our youngest is uh, 14, so we're all in the middle of these teenage years. And I said, hey, let's do this. Everybody take out your phone and go and see how, what your average screen time is per day. Okay, so everybody goes in. So under Apple, it's your settings. So you go to screen time. If you're like a green bubble person, I can't help you. It's there. I don't know how to find it. I don't know why you own an Android, but you do, okay? Um, and you ruin all of our text messages, okay? I'm just gonna say it for all of us. You just ruin all of our text messages. And then, so we, we, everybody pulls it up and I say, okay, now, who do we think has the most of our family, right? And everybody's like, oh, I think, I think it's just, okay. You know what? Everybody was blown away at how much time they actually spend on their phone. Arguing with us, like, I don't spend that much time on my phone. No, you do. I could take pictures of you all day on your phone, but then I would be on my phone to do that. So I'm not, okay? Because I'm not that kind of dad, right? Do this, not now. Do this, do it, do it this weekend. Look and see. You can, look, as a parent, you ought to be doing this anyway if you're a parent. Like you, you ought to be track, tracking not just your own, but your kids. Okay, you, you pay for this thing, you can track it. All right? It's, I'm telling you, you, we spend that much time on this and wonder why we don't know how to live by this. We're, we're like all the time here and never taking a look at the map. I remember when we were moving, we were driving across the country here, moving from Georgia, and we stopped to the Grand Canyon, and um, it's massive, it's really big. It's, I understand why they call it grand. It looks fake, okay, it looks fake. And I remember standing there with my wife, and we're looking at this massive canyon, it's very grand, and thinking, gosh, I can't even believe that this is real. And then I start to look around, and I'm watching, and everybody's taking pictures of it, right? And everybody says, oh, pictures don't do it justice, right? That's true. But you know what they're not doing? They're not taking pictures of it like this. They're taking pictures of it like this. Because they're saying, hey, look at me standing in front of the Grand Canyon. Because I'm better than it. Because I'm here and you're not. Don't you wish you were here? Right? It, it's, it's crazy how much influence we allow this. The, the, listen, the average age, average age of exposure to pornography now is 11. 11. That's the average, which means there's quite a bit below that <laughs> to pull us to 11. That's, scary. That's scary. And we kind of know it, but we just don't want to admit it. We're all for, we're all, we understand it until it comes, we're, we're like in the middle of planning camp and camp previews coming up for us. And we're all about it until I tell you, you can't send your kids to camp with their phone. 
And then the kids are sort of bummed, but like parents are like irate. <laughs> Y'all are like smuggled in their bags, like trying to get stuff into a prison. Like, just shh, don't tell. And you will sign a thing saying that you're not, you will lie for your kids and send it because you just don't know how to be, we don't know as parents, what do we do if our kids don't have their phone? How will I know if something goes wrong? Like, I'll call you from my phone. Like, it's taken hold of our lives, the things that we do, the things that you look at, the things that you click. Like, where are you a few degrees off in the things that are influencing your life? What is it that's happening? Gone are the days where we sit and have conversation. Gone are the days where we talk about life and ask really how your day was. Gone are the days where we are intentional with what we say and what we do. It's all viewed through a screen. It's all viewed through a screen. Uh, we, we've been giving you guys some resources uh, each week in this, and so I wanna give you two. Uh, the first is this book. It's called 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You by Tony Ranke. Fantastic book for you. 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. And the second one is called uh, Hashtag Struggles or Pound Sign Struggles, depending on where you are. Okay, like Pound Sign, right? And this is great. This is just talking about the influence the phones are having on us, how it's desensitizing us, how it's, we're, we're, we're just, how it's affecting our worship even as believers. And this one is, you know, how do we, how do we continually keep our eyes on Jesus, right? In, instead of being glued to a screen in a selfie world. So these two are great. There's another called Hashtag Wisdom. I don't have it with me. I've given every copy I have away, but it was written by a guy named Matt Curtis who was on staff with us for a while. Um, and you can grab all those there. So 12 ways your phone is changing you, um, hashtag struggles and uh, hashtag wisdom. And it's hashtag, I think spelled out on that one, but great options for you if this is a struggle. Let me take just a second here and, um, and encourage a bit, okay? If you are a parent specifically, let me say this. Um, none of us know what we're doing as parents. If you're a kid, don't listen to this part, okay? <laughs> We don't know what we're doing. You, you didn't come with a manual. They just gave us a human. And we brought it home. And we were like, whoa, now we gotta keep it alive. What do we do? It's harder to get a driver's license and get out of the DMV and get it home than it is to bring you home from the hospital. They literally can't wait to get you out. We're doing our best. You're doing your best, okay? You're doing your best. Your kids are gonna fail. They're gonna make mistakes. They're gonna, they're gonna find themselves off the path. That's life. You did it, I did it. That's life. Ultimately, you're gonna do your best to, to hopefully do your best to steer them and point them to Jesus. And then we trust the Lord with the rest. You are not responsible for every dumb decision your kids make. You might be responsible for some of them because they learned them from you, but not all of them. Not all of them, okay? So let me, let me give you three things here that just for parents. Number one, they're listening more than you think. They're listening more than you think and more than they'll admit. That's when you talk to them. When you look up from the screen to talk, they're listening more than you think. The problem is we're worse than they are. It's not just kids that have a problem with this. 
Next time you're at a restaurant, look around, see how many people are actually talking to one another, right? Parents and their kids, like, doesn't happen. They're, but they're listening more than you think. Doesn't feel like it, like somewhere when they start hitting the teenage years, like the aliens come and suck their brains out and they bring it back eventually. When that kid hits about 25, you're gonna be a genius, man. I don't know, you're gonna be so smart. But they're listening more than you think. Second, they're watching more than you wish. They're watching more than you wish. They're watching what you do. They're watching if what you say is what you really believe. They're watching as if what we do in this room is the same thing that happens when you're not in this room. They're watching you in this room. You say church is important and they have to come, but are you paying attention? Are you attentive? Are you distracted? Are you on your phone? Are you awake? Do you bring a Bible? Are you like, those are the things they're watching. You made me come. You said this was important. I don't get a choice. I have to be here. I'm here and you're not even paying attention. That's, that's the conversations. But they're watching. And when you get it right, they see that. When you mess up, they see that too. So own it. So own it. What, so what does that mean? They're listening. They're listening more than we think. They're watching more than we wish. So here's my encouragement to you. Then model your faith for them. Your faith, where you are, let them see it. When my kids were little, I would, I would come and sit at the table before they got up and I'd let them catch me in the word. Not because I wanted them to think their dad was super spiritual and awesome, because I wanted them to see that this is a priority to me and it's something I do every day. I do it all the time, but I did it sometimes. Like when I had opportunities to serve, I, I bring my kids with me. We brought our 10 year old to El Salvador on a mission trip because we were going. The reason that your teenagers are in the room with you right now is because we wanna give you opportunities to model your faith. A church isn't a boarding school where you ship your kids off to learn about Jesus. We teach them all day long, but they're watching you. And you are making an impact. Listen, of all the things that will influence your kid, of all the things, and listen, I've been a student pastor for 23 years. I'm telling you this because I've seen it over and over and over. Of all the things that will influence your kid's life, you are the number one influence. And don't let anything in this world tell you otherwise. Come good, bad, or indifferent, you are the greatest influence in their life. And they need you to be an influence for good. They need you to be an influence for good because they're spending hours outside of our homes. They're spending hours a day. Somebody is teaching them more than I can as their student pastor, but not more than you can in their home. So model that for them. This pressure of seeing the highlight reel, man. Listen, teen anxiety, adult anxiety, depression, suicide's through the roof. Suicide is now the second leading cause among teens behind car accidents. It's a pressure cooker we've placed them under. We're living with that same pressure. Solomon's life, man, he had this affluent, great, wonderful legacy and this great failure. In the end, he's remembered 
in 11, chapter 11, as a failure. He, he did not follow, he did evil in the sight of God. The reality is life is not straight. The path of life is not straight. It's full of mountains and valleys. Look, if we expect to navigate the challenges, we gotta be, come back and study this often. We gotta check the map. Even if I lay out my course, if we were going right now on a hike, we lay out the course on this map, I have to, we've gotta come back and make sure that we haven't drifted off course, figure out where we are. Are we still on track? Do we need to turn again to account, to align back to true north so we know where we're headed? You and I have to do that often. I love this in the book of Acts, chapter 17. The apostle Paul, okay, like if the apostle Paul told me anything in real life, I'd be like, this is the greatest, I'm right, can't take notes fast enough, right? The apostle Paul is teaching uh, here in Acts 17, there's a group called the Bereans. In Acts 17 11, the, it says this. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. The apostle Paul comes to teach them and they're like, you know what? That sounds awesome. But we're gonna make sure you're not lying to us, okay? I hope you do the same thing with us. I hope you do the same thing with us. We do our best to be diligent, to pour over God's word so that when we bring you something, that we're bringing you what is true and right and good and honors God and makes much of Jesus. But don't be foolish. Check your map. Check, check your map. I think when we think of this idea of influence, there's three questions really that we're all trying to answer in life, okay? Everything's trying to do this. The first is this identity, right? This is the question of who am I? Who am I? We all long to have that question answered. We seek that answer and what we find influences the decisions we make in life. The second is this, purpose. Why am I here? Why am I on this planet, this rock we call earth? The third is belonging, right? Where do I belong? Like, who are my people? Those, those three questions we long to have answered. The core of who we are, the answer to those, us, our desire to have those answered is what allows us to be influenced. And let me tell you a secret, that the answer to all of those is found only in Jesus. Because at the end of the day, it's only your creator that knows how to answer the questions that are the deepest longing of your soul. Only that. And so Mike, here, here's something for us to consider. Again, don't know where you're at in life and faith. Don't know what you walked in here today with or what you're gonna walk out carrying. But just some questions for us to consider. The first is this. What things in you, on your life are you allowing that could influence your faith? What things in your life are you allowing that could influence your faith? Either for or against. What are compromises that you've started to make, small ones that seem insignificant now, that could lead you off course? And what would it take to recalibrate? When was the last time you checked the map on those things? Second, 
Who in your life has God placed so that you could be an influence for the gospel? If you've been around here, we've, we talk about this all the time, and God has put eight to 15 people in the front row of your life so that you could influence them for the gospel's sake, so that they might come to know Jesus. Who is it in your life that God has put there so that you can influence? And the reality is that not all of us are even that far. That for some in this room, those questions at the core of who we are were so longing to be answered. And the answer is found in Jesus and him alone. And we explain it like this here every weekend. We, we call it the ABCs. Here's what it means to find him and to begin to find those answers. That we would admit that we're sinners. That we mess up, that we go off course. The more we try to do it, the more we mess up. That we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he died on the cross for our sins. Listen, he gave his life for you. He paid the punishment for you so that you wouldn't have to, so that you could be rescued from this mess and from eternity separated from him. And that you would see that you would choose and commit to follow him all the days of your life. Uncompromisingly follow him. If you've never done that, man, I would beg you to make that decision this weekend. I beg you to make that decision today. That you might allow God to influence your life in such a way that you would experience goodness and faithfulness in a way that you never thought imaginable. And that doesn't mean that the terrain isn't rocky and it doesn't mean that there's not gonna be hills and valleys and mountaintops. That is not what we're saying. We're saying that along the way as you march your way on that path that you don't go alone. It means that we, you, you learn to stop asking God to change your circumstances, but to start changing you so that you can navigate that circumstances with the joy you were created to live with. And that, my friends, only comes in Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for um, warnings like we find in our passage today, thank you for hope that we find in Jesus. Thank you for the influence that you allow us to have uh, in others and in those around us. I pray that you'd help us even now, God, to search our hearts for the small ways, for the few degrees that we might begin to find ourselves off the mark, that we might recalibrate even tonight realign with where we should be. God, give us a passion for your word that we would check it as the map to our life often. Um, God, even, even as we sit, Lord, with the room with parents and grandparents, help us be reminded of the influence that we carry and have. Would we not take it lightly? Would we not be discouraged? Would we run towards you with all that we have and that you'd be glorified and honored in our life? And it's in Christ's name I pray, amen.